This podcast focuses on connecting to the history that is all around us in our communities and the stories that shape who we are. Our third episode is all about finding history in your own backyard. I guess every episode is kind of about that, but this one is really about that. Join us as we learn about Tablertown in eastern Athens County, a unique family history that goes back to the early 1800s. We will also visit an Athens backyard to try to find out more about a mysterious spot and learn more about a local organization that is connecting people to history through their bicycles. I'm Brian Costco, and this is Invisible Ground. Myself and Invisible Ground would like to acknowledge that we are on traditional territory of the Kaskaskia, Osage, Shawnee, Adena, and Hopewell. You can find this show wherever you find your favorite podcasts already, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. You can also find it on findinvisibleground.com. If you enjoy Invisible Ground, please help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. It sincerely goes a long way in getting the word out. You can find previous episodes on that website, findinvisibleground.com. And if you'd like to send us an idea for a story or you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please email us, findinvisibleground at gmail.com. This episode is sponsored by our brand new Patreon page over at patreon.com slash invisible ground. You can head over to that page right now to not only support this podcast, but my big old MFA thesis production that's related to it. That'll be coming in April of 2022. You can help Invisible Ground in the work we do by sending a few bucks our way. Monthly plans start off at just $1 and they go up from there. Lots of cool stuff, including extra content, limited edition art postcard prints from Questionable Press, stickers, episode sponsorships, and more. Please support this show at patreon.com slash invisible ground. Thank you. So let's start off the episode with our first story and learn a bit more about Tablertown. This piece was adapted for an audio story from a longer video. You can find that video that Invisible Ground produced by searching Tablertown on YouTube, checking out our YouTube channel, or going to findinvisibleground.com and clicking on the watch tab. I'll start off by introducing you to the other voice you're going to hear in this story, David Butcher, who I had a chance to talk to at his home a few months back. We are just outside of Stewart on the Hocking River, about a mile outside, kind of in between what we call Kilbert, aka Tablertown, and Stewart, and we're in a uh, an exhibit that I have been trying to put together for a few years called People of Color. And it's about our local people, our local history, and our community here. We started with an oral history. When we started uh, doing some research, it was roughly 150 years old. And we are closely approaching 200 years now. I think it's like 187-year oral history that was passed down to us. So the oral history was told to us that we are descendants of a plantation owner's son and a plantation uh, slave named Hannah. 
This interview with David was done inside his People of Color exhibit. He assembled it himself, and it can only be described as a combination of jaw-dropping and inspiring. Spending a few days with him was wonderful. He's truly a kindred spirit. And he invited me in along with my wife Sherry and my good friend Chad to make a video and do an interview. We had snacks, threw axes, sat by a fire, and then he drove us around to look at cemeteries and the remains of mills and mines. He showed us all of the incredible artifacts of his family, which tell a story that is complex, beautiful, interesting, and unique. It's America in all of its complicated grandeur, all wrapped up in one family settlement in a specific place. Now my eighth great-grandfather is Michael Tabler, born in 1774 on his father's plantation in Virginia, which is now West Virginia, the Martinsburg area. Michael had feelings for one of his father's slaves named Hannah. The father disapproved of the relationship that he was having with Hannah and dispersed, dispersed her to different plantations. Michael purchased Hannah back from his sister in 1813 and freed her in 1818, which is very early. And now we know also that Michael from 1818 to 1830 somehow acquired six of Hannah's children. Soon after acquiring six of her children, he emancipated them, meaning he set them free. He moved them to Ohio, probably because he could not, or not, not that he could not, but he probably realized that these slave children could not inherit his property. I always wondered um, why our ancestors moved so close to a slave state. He could have, you know, in a few more months been in Canada. I'm convinced now that one of the uh, positive things for our family to survive you know, this close to a slave state was Michael was a white man and they didn't dare take a white man's property. Also, Michael is now traveling. These aren't kids anymore. These are men and women who were born in slaves from 1810 to 1816. And I, I, my guess is they, they are not going back. And so he's basically traveling with a militia. <laughs> David has these pieces of the story, the physical paperwork of emancipation, photos, maps, documents, and artifacts. But what amazes me most was that the oral history had survived and that he had gathered all these documents and items to support that same story with a historical record. Our visit was filled with so many fascinating anecdotes, including that of an early mill that ran in the 1800s, right off what is now Route 329 between Stewart and Kilver Tabletown. David told me that he ran into a story in a newspaper that mentioned the mill's owner harboring fugitive slaves from the South on his property. He thought that it was entirely possible that Michael Tabler also saw this story in a newspaper. And maybe it's what made him decide that this area in Ohio might be a safe place to settle with his family. So when they came to this area, I would say the population here probably doubled or quadrupled. Well, in 1830, there wasn't a whole lot here. Uh, you know, uh, there obviously was some, the earliest settlements in Athens County, right beside of my farm here is the Pioneer Cemetery, and it's from the late 1700s. But these people would have been here when my ancestors came here 
but there were still very few and almost no people of color. When they moved here, he soon purchased farms for each one of his children. Even the daughter Maria had their own farm. So children that were born from 1810 to 1816 as slaves by 18, mid-1830s have their own farms here in Ohio. And I just think that's amazing. And Michael, I should say this too, Michael um, stayed with his slave children till he died in 1843 here in Tablertown, which we call Kilbert now. Well, I, I like to challenge people when they come here. Our history is unique. It is a... Uh, we look at it now as a cultural asset. There is a slave and a slave owner who's his father in the same cemetery, you know, 30 feet apart. It's an amazing history. I think we can conclusively say that Hannah is here and I'm sure Michael would have made sure she was buried in the Kilmer Cemetery where he was buried in 1843. I asked David where he initially picked up his love of history and specifically the passion for his own family's history, which goes back so many hundreds of years here in Eastern Athens County. I would probably have to credit my grandmother, Elsie Tabler Butcher. Um, she was born around 1911, 1912 here. And um, I used to get off the school bus and make sure she had wood and stuff in for the days, nights. And she, she knew something was wrong with me. There was a miss somewhere. And she said, what's going on with you? And I said, well, I'm really discouraged about learning. I'm in history class. I love history, but you know, when they talk about our people, it's always just negative, negative, negative. You were a slave and that's it. And I can remember my grandmother going into her bedroom and I could hear her moving things around. And she came out with a little tintype photo of her grandfather which would be my great-great-grandfather, Jerry Sims, born in 1822 in Virginia. She said he was a Civil War soldier, and that, it just like, something clicked in me. The people of color exhibit that David has put together is absolutely incredible. I really cannot overstate that. You have to see it. And I know I'm really into this stuff, but seriously, this room is packed with interesting items, each with a story and specific people attached. And like I bring up often on this show, it really becomes a lens to view American history, told here through the lives of tablers, butchers, and others that lived right in this community. I had to ask David what his favorite pieces in this exhibit are. A couple of my favorite items in this exhibit, and we, again, we call this exhibit People of Color. Um, the 1820, the, the photo that my grandmother showed me of Jerry Sims, it would be one. And then two, we have the brass ring. In this photo, he's wearing a brass ring. I have that in the collection. And of course, everyone loves my great uncle Elias Butcher's wooden leg that he manufactured here. He was a World War I veteran, and that has always been very popular. <laughs> Some people would like to just say this is black history. Some people would like to say this is Native American history. Uh, but I can't just say about one without 
mentioning the other. When you take all these together and you see us in a photo, I have a five-generation photo that I'm very proud of, of my son, Caleb Butcher, his mother, Rose Flowers Butcher, her father, Lerman Flowers, his mother, Nellie Singer Flowers, who's now 99, and her mother, Pearly Singer. Just looking at that photo, I challenge you to say what race or what color, and it's kind of insignificant when we all are uh, 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 brought together by these different circumstances and people trying to just survive. So in order to not to exclude anyone, we came up with the title People of Color. So how did this collection happen? There's all sorts of people who become de facto family historians, archivists, and depositories for information and documents. I assume that there are a lot of those people listening to this show right now. Not surprisingly, I'm one of those people too. But there's a big jump from that to, well, making a museum. David explains the roots of this project and how it got started for him. We made a decision a few years ago. Actually, this, this kind of got started. I got a call from Ohio University, and they said, hey, we have a, a group of adults coming. They're going to be here for a few weeks from Ghana. They're interested in learning about our local history and culture. Could you talk to them and maybe show them around? I said, yeah. I said, you know, we've been kind of digging out stuff. I, and I had this pole building here, and I thought, well, we'll get, we'll set up something for them. And uh, it went over very well. And I decided, you know, I can't wait forever for to do something. So I... With the help of my wife and, and my mom, my 82-year-old mother, you know, we, we just started putting stuff together. And, uh, and now it's kind of, I've really never had an official opening yet. I'm not even open, but uh, I've had a lot of people through here, and it's exciting. And the, the exhibit keeps improving. People make donations. Uh, you know, you, you and I jokingly, there, there hasn't been one tax dollar spent on this exhibit. This is all from the help from my family and community. Right now, it's, it's very important because of the racism that has been shed now in this country. When my children are hearing things like, go back where you come from. When I, my children can say, my ancestors were here 400 years before your ancestors even got off the boat. <laughs> so, if you don't have that pride in your history or know your history, you would take that as being very painful when someone says, go back where you come from. And when you can say, my ancestors fought and died for this country are still fighting and dying for this country way before you even thought about getting here. So that's just one significant part of it. That's to, to fight this racism. Secondly, it's just important to, for, for children especially to grow up. I don't want to ever see one of our ancestors sitting in the classroom slumped in their seat because of being taught some negative black history or African-American history or Native American history. And what's David Butcher's hope for the future of these amazing artifacts and the stories that he has helped to gather? Thinking of this as a cultural asset, asset meaning it's something that 
can benefit our community. When I am long gone, my hope is this exhibit will continue to be left to the community and for generations to come, it will keep growing and help the community survive. That's the goal is to keep this story alive and it will be here long after I'm gone. It's not going to do me any good to collect all this stuff, put it together, and then something happens to me and it's just dispersed. That's not my goal. Long-term goal is to have this in Tabor Town and for generations to come. And then, as you were saying more broadly, is that this will be accessible to visit. It'll be accessible by the internet and for you know people doing research. And uh, so that's that's kind of like my long-term plan. I want to play a short piece I did for Invisible Ground about a couple friends who had a historical mystery in their Athens backyard. This was originally made for a graduate class of mine in the School of Visual Communication at Ohio University. This story is called Bobby. In every community, the history of the people who came before you can be present in many different ways, sometimes literally in your own backyard. My friends Missy Pence and Eric Coleman bought a house a few years back here in Athens, Ohio. Usually after a new home purchase, a few surprises always come up. Maybe it's a roof that needs replacing or a window that won't stay open. But for my two friends, their discovery was a bit different. Here's Missy to tell the story. I found out about it the first day that I came to look at the house. At that time, I met the neighbor. She saw me snooping around. <laughs> she came out um, to talk to me about the house. The thing that I found maybe the most interesting about this particular piece of property was that it was once owned by Margaret Boyd, the first woman to graduate from Ohio University. And apparently her house sat in what is now our backyard. So our house wasn't built when she owned the property. It's newer than that. But there are the remnants of her house back there a chimney beside that it was pointed out that there was a gravestone back there it's just kind of an interesting conversation piece to mention to people that there is a gravestone in our backyard i asked eric what he remembers about his wife's initial reaction to the house and the first time she mentioned what was in the backyard she was just out running around one day and came and looked at the property came home and right away I could tell that this was a place that she was in love with. And I pretty much knew that we would end up buying the house within the first three seconds of her talking about it just because of her enthusiasm and how much she loved it. And in that enthusiasm was also, and there's a, there's a body buried on the property. We all headed up that hillside behind the house for a walk through some recent snowfall and icy ground so that they could show me the spot. The gravestone is prominent with the name Bobby very clearly chiseled in the front. Other than the lack of a last name and the years of birth and death, this would not look out of place in any cemetery. Gravestone appears to have been knocked over, so it's lying flat, but okay. I think it probably stood upright. It's about a foot by two feet. So, I mean, it's hard to say if this is where it, if it got moved to this spot in particular, or if this is where it's always been. This is such a direct connection to the past. Even though the property and house are known to be from the Boyd family, there is still so much to this story. How does Missy feel about having this in her own backyard? 
I love the connection to the history of Athens. Well, I'm certainly excited about the Margaret Boyd aspect. I've just been curious about the whole story the whole time and have always been hopeful that my friend Brian would. <laughs> the story is far from complete, and hopefully we can spend some more time researching and investigate who exactly Bobby might have been and if he is involved with Margaret Boyd and her family. Sometimes that thread that runs from the past to the present it may just go right through your own backyard. The last story of this episode focuses on Southeast Ohio nonprofit Rural Action and their efforts to approach history through the natural environment, outdoor recreation, and a bit of ecotourism. During the continued pandemic, a few folks at this organization have developed Ride Through Time, a bike tour that focuses on the region's history. The first one took place in June of 2020 in the little cities of Black Diamonds region, with more rides after that. Each stop on a bike ride includes a local historian as an interpretive guide that provides more information on the location and has a short discussion with the riders. Over here at Invisible Ground, we absolutely love things like this. So I wanted to make sure to talk with the people who were involved and learn a bit more. The AmeriCorps members who developed it, Madison Donahue and Emily Walter, talked to me about the creation of this program. You'll hear first from Madison and then Emily. Ride Through Time is a historical guided bike tour and it's through rule action. So Emily and I both have some awesome supervisors uh, at Rule Action, and they kind of let us create this idea of taking people out on bike rides and teaching them about the local history and ecology of the region. So we mapped out a really fun route that starts in Nelsonville and goes through Haydenville and Carbon Hill and circles back into Nelsonville. And on the ride, we have six uh, historic stops where we meet a local historian who tells us about the awesome stories at each location. And at one of the locations, we have snacks uh, from a local restaurant or uh, grocer. And it's about four hours long and just shy of 20 miles. So it's a lot of fun. What I find so interesting about the history of Southeast Ohio is this intersection of labor and environment and how quality of life is impacted by both of those two categories. So like, I just feel very inspired by knowing the sort of like ferocity of workers standing up for what they knew that they deserved historically in Southeast Ohio and across Appalachia. So on this particular tour, um, when we stop in places like Haydenville, the last company town in the state of Ohio, thinking about what it was like to live in a company town and like how your entire life was uh, directed by your position. Experiencing the history and physical environment of a region directly and in a different setting can be powerful. It creates new space to think about how all of this interacts. It moves stuff outside of the boxes that it's normally relegated to. Again, Madison Donahue. I would identify first as a naturalist. Um, so I love teaching people about the environment that we live in. Uh, and the more I learn about the region, the more I understand that you can't really talk about our landscape without talking about the history of what it was once 
used for, as in the way of like the industrial uh, uses. So I think I just think that is an essential part of being a naturalist in Southeast Ohio, Appalachia, Ohio. This is how, yeah, you can relate to one another in the land. So I think it's just a matter of like giving respect to people of the past and also learning from them as to seeing like what our current situation is, is why I want to share those stories, especially because so many people have personal connections to land and to like their family's history here. For those people seeing these stories on display, I think can also be very um, like validating and affirming and uh, feels good for them. I don't want them to feel as if like their ties to place are washed away. And what about the historians who are involved? This is a different approach, and it's a point of connection between the natural world and the history that it contains. What's it like to talk about history while you're outside somewhere to a bunch of cyclists who are on a riding tour? To answer that, and more broadly to talk about the importance of taking the subject matter into different directions, I talked with those who were involved with the project from the history end of the equation. I wanted you to know what it was like to talk about the history of Haydenville and the company towns while standing right there in the physical spot, or listening to it while you ride your bike through it. So I asked one of those people involved, Tyler McDaniel. He works with Little Cities of Black Diamonds, and he also runs social media pages as the Ohio and Appalachian History Geographer. I think for pretty much all of them, or for most of them, it was their first time there. Certainly their first time to stop, you know, and actually take in what Haydenville is. Uh, it was cool because I was able to kind of feel that first time seeing something and share it with other people. And um, I don't know, it seemed like everybody was really captivated by it. I was also able to talk with another historian who was involved with the bike tours to get an idea of what it was like. This is Ingrid Buckley, the AmeriCorps member at the Southeast Ohio History Center in the Ohio History Service Corps program. We're used to doing, or going through museums kind of either on your own pace and reading things and looking at things. And there's more of an effort to be much more interactive these days in museum settings. Um, and so we're kind of used to that. And I think we're also used to having tours where you're listening to someone and maybe there's a bit of back and forth conversation, but you're kind of walking around a place kind of slowly, again, looking at things, trying to absorb it all. And that's all great. Um, but in a way it feels a little passive. And so I think what this really did is like, while you are experiencing these different spaces and getting information about them, you're also like moving your body. I think there's something really connected to that movement and that activity um, that A is just it, like is wonderful for me. I think it's I think it's great and I think it also helps people have a different experience when it comes to learning history um, and understanding these places in different ways than we're used to. Most of them have ridden on the bike path for years, but never really noticed some of the things that I pointed out, and that was special. It's inspiring to see people that, when they have that great aha moment that first time, when they're like, wow, like when it hits them. When we you know, give attention to certain elements of history to 
you know, we then kind of instill value in them and uphold them. And then it becomes seen as more important than maybe it was before. And I think that is so, so important when it comes to local history, especially Southeast Ohio and Appalachian history generally, because there is some sort of idea that this doesn't quite matter as much as history, you know, it's kept in the Smithsonian or something. And that is completely not true. It's completely skewed. To find out more about this program, check out ruralaction.org. And I highly recommend checking out Tyler's page, The Ohio and Appalachian History Geographer, on Facebook and Instagram, as well as his social media posts for the Little Cities of Black Diamonds. Special thanks for this episode to David Butcher out in Tablertown, Madison Donahue and Emily Walter of Rural Action, Tyler McDaniel from Little Cities of Black Diamonds and the Ohio and Appalachian History Geographer pages, and Ingrid Buckley of the Southeast Ohio History Center and Ohio History Service Corps. Thank you as well to Missy and Eric Coleman for telling me about Bobby and entrusting me with that story. I am still hopeful that there's more to it, and I've been on the hunt, especially after I heard this response from Ingrid Buckley when it came up during our interview about the bike ride. Totally separate topic. Oh my God, that so was like actually, my backyard when I was a kid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, yep, yep. And there's a grave there. Yeah, and it says Bobby. <laughs> okay, so we're on this. You know what that is? <laughs> my dad was always like, it's probably someone's dog. Again, please be sure to support our Patreon page at patreon.com slash invisible ground. It helps this podcast out a whole lot, as well as this giant MFA multimedia thesis that I'm creating for Invisible Ground. In return, I'll give you extra content, behind the scenes stuff as I work on my thesis and this podcast. We even have stickers and letterpress art print postcards and sponsorships at other levels. Music in this episode is from Matthew J. Rowland, Daniel Bachman, No Stars, Weed Ghost, Adam Remnant, Brian Harnady, Dead Winds of Summer, Keith Hanlon, and Todd Jacobs. Todd also makes her theme music, and you heard him a few other places throughout. Thank you all for contributing these beautiful sounds to this show. It is as much a part of it as the stories themselves. Please support the show by subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing it with other people who might like what we do. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and of course, our home at findinvisibleground.com. Add us on Instagram and Facebook too. And if you have an idea for a show or you're interested in being a sponsor, please email me at findinvisibleground.com. We'll see you next time.